I've always enjoyed that God has a sense of humor. On Friday night, my wife and I were walking along the docks of, uh, in Alton, town of Alton Bay, and at the, the town circle, there was a uh, band playing, and I heard this song called Cheeseburgers in Paradise. And for you Jimmy Buffett fans, you know that that's one of his most famous songs. And I thought, is there some spiritual meaning to it? Because I certainly need to be able to use it in my sermon illustration as we prepare to look at the very end of Revelations and see what God's plan is for his creation. And that is full restoration. Everything made new and our relationship with God has been made new. Well, it turns out the song cheeseburgers in paradise were written after Jimmy Buffett ended up getting stranded at sea in a boat. And you know, they're pulling food out of the cupboards as the day goes by, no more fresh food, you know, down to whatever's in cans and crackers and stuff like that. And they finally got back to one of the British Virgin Islands, British Virgin Islands, one of the largest, Tortula. And Tortula is known for these incredible white sandy beaches yachts in the harbor, and gorgeous hills and mountains in the background. First thing he did is have a cheeseburger in that paradise. So no, it had nothing to do with the paradise that we look forward to when God's in God's final act, but I think we can learn a lot from it. So imagine, in his case, you're a sailor at sea, you've run out of food, what joy there would be in getting that cheeseburger in paradise, Tortula. For us, God turns that around or upside down, and what he does is he's giving a vision of what's to come for the purpose of encouraging us. So we're going to look at a passage of the scripture in Revelations, chapter 21, 1 through 7, where God gives us a glimpse of his new creation. Heaven come down to earth. Well, we'll dig into that. But the goal of it is the same as Jimmy Buffett's thought and encouragement for cheeseburgers in heaven. It's to encourage the church, uh, to help us to overcome and have victory over the trials and the uh, temptations that we face. And I want to reinforce that much of this is focused on the church. The church needs to be a, a safe place where we as believers can encourage each other and be encouraged by God because it is tough going. Out there. So, this glimpse of heaven or heaven on earth is meant to encourage us. It is a good reminder, though, of what our relationship with God is now. So, God did create us for a relationship with Him, as we think of the earliest times in the book of Genesis. And we did cho choose to go our own way, as the slides illustrated uh, behind me. We broke our God's heart when He did that. But it did not diminish God's love for it all because his response was to offer Jesus as salvation, as a response to the sin in our life. He went to the cross, death on the cross on our behalf, and then God has showed his power by resurrecting Jesus. But that's only partial, right? There's far more to come. God's plans for his church is very, very encouraging, and this is what we're going to find in this short passage in the book of Revelation. And again, the purpose of looking at this is to be encouraged as a church so that we know what it is that will be at the end, that we're encouraged to help 
each other overcome and have victory over trials and temptations. Now, I want to give you a little bit of the context of this passage in Revelations. Often when we talk, hey, we're going to talk about end times, what do you think about? Ooh, the tribulation, the millennial rule of Jesus, earthquakes, hurricanes, comets hitting the earth, the sea turning to blood. But we're well past that. All of that is finished and Jesus has victory in the verses we're going to look at. But the purpose of Revelation is that it was written to seven specific churches. And it was written for a purpose. One, so that they knew what was coming up. Both the apocalyptic stuff that would happen in the world as well as God's final judgment and then Jesus' victory, victory over um, Satan and the final judgment and the new heaven and the new earth. So it's written to seven churches. It starts out with practical instruction to them and then a challenge to them to be victorious knowing what's in store for them, this new heaven and, and new earth. So as the words come from Jesus through the Apostle John, who, who wrote the Gospel of John, and it's often John's words we're reading when we look at these verses in Revelations. So let's walk through the verses that we're going to look through. Grab your Bibles, your smartphone, your tablet, and we'll be looking at Revelations 21, 1 through 7. Now imagine for John, as he sees these visions, as the angels have brought him into heaven and he's hearing from Jesus... Imagine being able to describe what you see. He does his best to describe what he's going to see and what's going to happen in the new. Uh, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. In verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the order, old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, speaking to John, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'll be there. These are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost, from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is the future hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. And the emphasis in the last, chap, uh, last verse, chap, verse 7, this idea of being victorious is a common theme that started in the first few past uh, uh, chapters of Revelation, when John is writing to those seven churches. The challenge to each of the churches was to overcome and be victorious over a certain weakness that the church had. And that God's goal was to help them to overcome that weakness so that they could make it, if you will, 
to the end, this glorious end. So let's go back and look a little bit more closely at these seven verses, starting with this whole idea of a new heaven and earth. Now, one of the things we're not going to cover today is what happens to the believer when they die now, or if they died 100 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. That's a really important study, but one that's not covered by this section of Revelation. But be assured that Jesus has that under control and in his hand. But this is about what happens after a final judgment and all of the believers as well as everyone else is resurrected and we have new bodies. Remember, everything becomes new and God is telling about living with him in eternity in fully restored relationship with him. All right, so let's start with verse number one, this whole idea of a new heaven and an earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So this is part of God's promise. When we were expelled from the garden in, in Revelation because we had chosen to go our own way, we did leave on our own. It's called the curse. God was willing and wanted to be in relationship with and partnership in the garden, and we didn't want to be in partnership with God. So the earth that we live on, as good as it is, and God has created some magnificent things in the earth we live in, you know, is not fully what God had intended it to be. It is a fallen earth. And then if you think of those apocalyptic writings, verses 4 through 20 in Revelation, the earth gets pretty beat up during the tribulation time, including comets hitting it, the sea turning to blood, and those all kinds of things. So this is fulfilling God's promise to make everything new in a new heaven and earth. But here's the most important part as we turn to verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now it's reasonable to say if I were to die today, I go to heaven. But we're not going to cover that, right? Right today. But here... We're talking about a completely different action on God's part. Heaven is coming down to earth. In this new glorious new creation, a combined heaven and earth. Now that's not to say that there still are not the heavens because they're described in Revelation that there are still the, the, the heavens. But this is God's creation and he describes it as the holy city or the new Jerusalem. And better yet... It's prepared as a bride. It's a beautiful thing, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, this references both the city, and we'll learn a bit more about the city as we dig into this, but it also talks about who's in the city, God's people, his redeemed uh, people that occupy the city. We are, the church is the bride of Christ, and uh, fully dressed for her husband refers to Jesus um, in that imagery that has already been introduced through the New Testament and is finalized in these verses in the book of Revelation. And I heard a loud voice in verse 3 from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be them and be their God. That is our hope, brothers and sisters that relationship fully stored with God. Now, we've sung songs about becoming new, and we have become new because of the actions of Jesus Christ going to the cross for us. 
And Jesus is our high priest sitting at the right-hand side of God. So we've got a connection to God right now through Jesus who sits with God at his right side in the heavens. But we are separated from God. We are not in direct relationship with God. And this is what we're come to understand as we look at the final act of God in the very end of the book of Revelation. That now we'll have relationship fully with God as well as Jesus in this new heaven and new earth. Again, that is our hope. So as we move forward into verse number four, it's interesting as this new heaven and earth is described, it starts by talking about what's missing from the new heaven and earth. And if you're taking notes, that second line is best described by what is missing. In verse four, John writes, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Again, that idea of everything becoming new. Let's talk about no death. We are eternal beings. And the sad part of the last part of the book of Revelations, which we're not covering in chapter 20, is that there is a judgment. And either you're a follower of Jesus and one of God's, or you're not, and there'll be a separation at that judgment time. And those who love Jesus will be part of this city, and certainly that should be a challenge for us when we ever think of the glory of God and being in direct relationship with him. It should break our heart for those that don't know that truth and that reality. So there'll be no death, and we will spend eternity with God. And that's the promise that we see in verse 4. There'll be no mourning or crying or pain. We'll no longer be sad about a loved one who's passed away. We'll never be broken up by a child or a parent that's got an incurable disease. All of that will be gone in this new heaven and earth. There will be no pain. The old order gone, that curse on the earth is removed in this renewed heaven and earth. Now, I find some very helpful information about the new heaven and earth, surprisingly, in the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah foretold that this new heaven and earth would be created. He foretold it. You'll read about it in chapter 65 in Isaiah. And one of the things I encourage you to do is this afternoon... Read that chapter. It's fascinating. It gives a, a lot more information about a new heaven and earth. And this was written thousands of years, a thousand years ago, as Isaiah is prophesying this new heaven and earth. But one of the things Isaiah says at the very beginning after he says in verse 17, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. This is God speaking. I will create a new heaven and earth. The former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind. Let me read that again. So the new heaven and earth is created, and God says the former things will not be remembered, the past will not be remembered, nor they will come to our mind. That's critical. If we think of no mourning, no tears, we will not be able to remember the times that we were terribly cruel to somebody else. Because that should bring mourning and tears to our sides. But God will take that away. Likewise, the terrible things that someone might have done to us, 
we won't remember that. Heaven will be a place where there is no mourning, where we'll be moving forward in joy, in full relationship with God and relationship with each other. So take, take heart in that, that you may look back to your own past and say, wow, I look forward to full relationship with God in a new heaven and earth, but will it come out all the things I've done? You won't remember them if you're a follower of the believer. And again, I hope you find that's encouraging. Let's talk just a little bit more about what will not be in the new heaven and earth. In uh, uh, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 22, uh, we read that, I did not see a temple in the city, this new uh, city of uh, 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 Jerusalem, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And that's just reinforcing, especially to the Jewish people, that God would have been found in the temple. In fact, before Jesus broke the veil uh, between the uh, Holy of Holies and, and the people, you know, God to the, the, the Jewish people resided in the temple. And that's gone. That's gone now with our relationship with Jesus because he's uh, advocating on our part, sitting next to um, God in heaven. But in the future, there will be no need for any temple in the holy city because God and Jesus are in full relationship with us. In uh, verse 23 of uh, chapter 22, it says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. And that's kind of interesting. It might beg the question, well, in the new heaven and earth, will there be a sun? Will there be a moon? Likely, because I don't think this is trying to tell us there won't be a sun and moon. But what it's trying to tell us is that the glory of God gives its lights, and the Lamb, Jesus, is its lamp. So at night, Jesus brines, uh, shines so brightly that there's no need for the moon. He is the lamp. And during the day, God shines brighter than the sun. So will there be a sun and a moon in the new heaven and earth? I bet there will be. But God's glory will be so right and so bright and so magnificent that we won't be thinking about them because God's glory will fill the place. Now, I know all of you are on the edge of your seats with two questions. Will there be mansions? And secondly, streets of gold. That's worth looking at. Where does the idea of mansions in heaven come from? It comes from the Apostle John's uh, writing the gospel. And in chapter 14, if you're writing some of this down, he's writing, uh, writing Jesus' word to the troubled disciples who have learned that Jesus is going to be leaving them. And they're very sad to hear that news. So Jesus says to them, My Father's house has many rooms... If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So the whole idea of rooms in heaven comes from that section in the Gospel of John. And the King James Version translates the word that most other versions use rooms for. They translate it as mansions. Not meant to mean that there is many mansions, but you are in God's house that has many mansions or rooms, or rooms, or one translation calls it abodes. The reinforcement that there is a place for everyone who loves God in God's house, in God's place. So, will you have your own mansion in heaven? 
Seems really unlikely. Will you be in a better place, though? God's mansion? His house? Amen, yes. Streets of gold. We turn back to Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 16. The angel describes to John what the city's going to look like. Now remember, the emphasis of all this is not about the place. The emphasis is about God having access to God in the place, God having come down to earth in this new heaven and earth. But it is important to understand how magnificent it is because it shows God's glory to us as a church. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. The angel, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it's long. I know some of you are already doing the math. No, probably not. 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles. So imagine the holy city in the new heaven and earth is 1,400 miles in this direction, 1,400 miles in this direction, and again, my mind can't comprehend this, it's 1,400 miles in that direction. It is huge. Wow, can God make a city? There is room for everyone in this city. The angel measured the wall of the city using the human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick, 200 feet thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with for the decorations of the city walls. The 12 gates, here it comes, the pearly gates. Each gate was made of a single pearl. Magnificent. The great street of the city was of gold. Here's the streets of gold. The great street of the city was gold. As pure as transparent glass. Now I have to confess when I sing some of the hymns that talk about mansions in heaven and streets of gold, I get uncomfortable reading them. Because all of this is meant to help us to see God's magnificence and God's glory. And in no way is trying to appeal to our thoughts of having possessions. Because the beauty of heaven will be that we're all in it together with God. So again, I hope you haven't been tainted by one too many hymns that talks about your mansion in heaven. You're going to be in God's mansion in heaven. All right, and now I'm going to go on a limb and answer some questions like, no, you're not going to ask the questions like, will there be work there? Will there be animals in the new heaven and earth? Will there be sports in the new heaven and earth? Let's start with work, because that's the easiest one. So I want to reinforce that you'll have a body. And think back to the Garden of Eden when you had a body that was meant to be eternally with God. God and Adam and Eve were walking together in the gardens. That's what we'll be in the new city. We're not going to be ethereal or spirits or something floating around, right? We're going to have bodies. And will these bodies have work? Well, we learn from um, Genesis that that was one of the purposes of God creating us. He created us for relationship with him and to help him with creation. And God's first assignment to man was caring for the Garden of Eden. Now, when you think of this magnificent city, right, that's 1,400 miles in every direction, can you imagine how much need for work there'll be need? 
to care for and maintain God's city. And I know that God is going to invite each of us in some part in it. And work will not be a chore. Work was because we decided to go on our way and God said, okay, I'm taking my hands off creation. You manage it, people. Now we're doing it together. So work will be a joy. In fact, I would challenge you to think back over the best job that you've ever had and the best time at the best job that you ever had. Multiply that by 16. I'm making that up. And that's what it's going to be like in heaven. It will be so rewarding to be part of God's mission for eternity, working together with God and each other. Back to the idea of animals. Of course animals will be there. That's an easy one. I'm not going on a limb here. In God's creation, one of the things he created, and he said it was good, were the animals, both the livestock and the wild beasts. And in some way, we are going to have, like we had in the original garden, the responsibility for God's creation, his animals, as well as the plants and trees and all the other things. So there'll be great responsibility. So for those of you that love animals, I think it's going to be a very different environment with those animals. Again, I encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 65 because it gives you some hints of what it might be in this new creation, our relationship with God's creation, the animals. And then sports. Will there be sports in heaven? We could keep going on with this, but I just thought I'd pick three things that we could talk about. For those of you that might be a marathon runner, for example, are there going to be marathons in heaven? Do you enjoy it? Do you find joy in it? Would, be, would it bring joy to God? Then I'm going to say, yes, there's going to be marathons in heaven. But what kind of marathon will it be? What will those 26 miles look like? You'll be running through the most glorious place you've ever run through. You'll be in awe all 26 miles. And I don't believe you'll be competing with the other runners. I think you'll be in it together. You'll all be encouraging each other along to make the 26 miles in full joy of God's creation and the ability to run the 26 miles without what? Any pain! I hope that sounds good to the marathon runner. But apply that to any sport that you love. If it's good and wholesome and pleases God and brings joy, God is going to multiply all of these in heaven. It is going to be a wonderful and a glorious place. Um, a new Eden. A better paradise. So at this point, we need to finish the last few verses of the seven verses we're looking at. And these verses are very, very important verses because it really provides a segue to the next part of our discussion together. And that is um, why, again, reinforcing why gives us, God gives us this image of uh, the future hope of a new heaven and, and earth. So in verse uh, 5, if you're following along with me, He writes, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new to reinforce that. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done, right? The final act of God before our eternal life with him. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life, a reminder from Jesus, that he is the source of life. Um, and in verse 7, 
those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And I want to segue, move off of this idea of those who are victorious, because that is how the book of Revelation starts. In chapter 2 and 3, again, there's a challenge to seven different churches to be victorious. So God is completing the loop here. He's originally in those first chapters, through the writer John, challenged the churches to have victory over certain things, and we're going to look at some of them, with the end goal that we have victory. People come to Christ through our churches. People, you know, get motivated and on fire for God, and they join God in this new heaven and earth. So that is the goal of all of Revelations. So what I wanted to look at then is some characteristics of a healthy church because we as a church, the fellowship, or any other church, want to be a healthy church that help people to be overcomers, to have victory over the trials and temptations that each of us face. So we're just going to look at four of the seven churches, really in very short as I try to pull this all, all together, starting with the first church that's listed in Revelations in chapter 2, the church of Ephesus. And you guys are all familiar with the church of Ephesus. Ephesians, the letter by Paul to the church of Ephesus. So Paul, um, John uh, is documenting what he hears from Jesus. It's written to the church of Ephesus. And it starts out in uh, verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Very, very positive. It's probably a church very much like the fellowship. Their, 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 their fruit is very, very good and positive. But in verse 3, he says, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown, grown weary, yet I hold this against you. And God is doing this in love. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And many of you are familiar with that, this idea of you have lost your first love. And what is he referring to? Think of the New Testament church. There were two characteristics, significant characteristics of the, the new church. One, they were madly in love with Jesus. And secondly, their care and comfort and concern for each other was off the charts. And that characterized the early church. And that's what the church of Ephesus is being called to uh, during this time, to overcome that risk of just becoming a, a place that did stuff but was not motivated by their love for Jesus and their love for each other. And I think that's a good challenge for us. I do think that this is a church that exudes love for God and love for each other. But I also think it's a good challenge for us to remind us not to get, in, get caught up in the act of doing things without being motivated by God to do them and giving God the glory for everything that, that we do. A second church he writes to is the church in Smyrna. And the challenge to them is that they remain faithful when persecuted. So if you're following along, remains faithful when persecuted. He writes to the church in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. 
Now remember, this is written to the church, not specifically to individuals, although it does apply to individuals, but it is a challenge to the church. And I think it's rather extraordinary, in a sad way, what has happened to the church in the U.S. As we think of churches that shared the gospel based on, on, on the Bible and held firm to our commitment to Jesus. And the fellowship certainly takes this challenge to remain faithful when persecuted seriously. Although we enjoy a time without persecution, as we look at the, the, the trends, right? The direction that our country and, and the world is going in, you know, we will increasingly become unpopular. And when you're unpopular, persecution occurs. Or if you challenge, persecution occurs. So this is a challenge for us. I want to give you an example of an individual, though, because I think it's so meaningful. I was in a Bible study with a new Christian. He was about 30 years old, named DJ, and he was a framer, building houses, doing the frame part. And to be a framer, you're always lifting heavy things. Heavy things are falling on you. You're using these massive nail guns. Occasionally you miss a little bit and goes through your thumb. DJ was rough and tough. But he'd come to know Jesus. And it was a delight getting to know him. We couldn't have been more different. But one of the things he began to experience as his coworkers learned that he was a Jesus freak or a Jesus follower is they were really hard on him. In many ways, they felt abandoned by him because he no longer wanted to go drinking with them and doing other things with them that they had enjoyed together. And so they were taking it out on him. And the epitome, or the, the final act of persecution by BJ, DJ, is when they took his Bible out of his truck and used those fr- framing guns and sent over 100 nails through the Bible, nailing it to the side of a building. DJ was discouraged, but certainly not discouraged enough to give up on Jesus. In fact, it motivated him more. And I watched as he uh, continued to grow on a Christian, marry another woman that was in the Bible study and continued to love, uh, love Jesus. But it, it's, it was an incredible story and an encouragement to me as he responded to the persecution that he was facing and he shared it with us week to week in his Bible study. A church that we're not that familiar with, Thyatira, uh, their challenge is to resist false teaching, if you're following along. Resist false teaching. In chapter 2, verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. This is a church that's growing and maturing. This is a positive thing. Nonetheless, I have this against you. And again, this is said in love. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, every church might face a different thing from a false prophet. That was specifically the thing that they face. But that is a challenge and a genuine challenge that every church will face. And what is the answer to it? And I hope you find it here at the fellowship. What is our source for everything that's preached from the front of this room, every Bible study that's available, it's God's Word and God's Scripture. And that's how we can honor this challenge to uh, resist false teaching. It's not even to be on the lookout for false teaching as it is from the standpoint that if you're never uh, straying from the source, 
then the false teaching does not have a, a, a spot in. And I got to tell you, um, I am so impressed, proud of the number of Bible studies that are going to be available this fall here at the fellowship. Have you seen the list? Did you see them go by on the screen? Whether you want to get into the book of Ephesians or the book of Exodus or Hebrew, do an Old Testament survey, start at the beginning and work your way to the back or look into the book of John, all of those Bible studies will be available this fall. And it reinforces our commitment to opening up this book to make sure that all of our teaching represents what God wants and not what man wants. A good challenge to us to maintain that commitment to our biblical commitment. And finally, the church of Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a very affluent church. And part of their problem, the root of their problems, was they could do so much on their own. They had a lot. They weren't facing persecution, nor were they facing much in the way of trials. But here's what uh, God calls them out on. And the challenge is to relish the heat, if you're filling in your blanks. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I like the word about. Because of God's great love for us, he doesn't say, I will spit you out of my mouth. I'm about to, right? He's challenging them. And God, our God is the God of first, second, third, fourth, fifth, fifth 77th, um, second retries. Um, so you are ab I'm about to spit you out of mouth. But his challenge to them is to be passionate about the good news of Jesus Christ and to be passionate about their love for God and passionate about their love for, for each other. When I was in high school, I was a wrestler. And one of the things we never liked is what we called a fish. Now you ask, what's a fish when you're doing wrestling? A fish was a wrestler that never gave you an opportunity to grab an arm or a leg. You know, that you always won. You always won, but it was never satisfying because you couldn't pin them. And that was the goal of wrestling. You wanted to pin them. You could always win by points, but a fish never gave you an opportunity. And that's the description of the church of Laodicea. That you really couldn't put your finger on what was wrong, wrong with them. They, they were neither hot nor cold. There was no passion there. Relish the heat is the challenge that we face. All right, let's wrap this up. What is our response to all of this? And the challenge to all of us comes shortly after the writings to these seven churches because immediately after writing to the church of Laodicea, John hears from the angel and uh, through Jesus, hears from Jesus through the angel these words in chapter 3, 19 through 20. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So one of the things after writing to all these churches that Jesus wants to do is challenge each of those churches to identify and respond to those issues. Understand that is the fact that Jesus loves them, that he's rebuking them and disciplining them and respond in earnest and in repentance. And that's a fair challenge to each of us, not only as a church, the fellowship church, but as individuals. As we think of the glory of the new heaven and earth, and the upcoming restoration of our relationship with God. May we look at our own lives 
and say, hey, are there areas that I need to repent of in earnest? That's the challenge I hope each of us feel uh, this morning. It's certainly what I feel as I look at the magnificent generosity of God and what he has in store for us. But then there's some very familiar verses that come immediately after those. In verse 20, and all of you will know this, and these are Jesus' words, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. If you've been listening in on this and you said, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in what God has planned for us, but you're questioning whether you're part of God's people. Or maybe you have not made a commitment yet to becoming part of God's people by embracing the free gift of the sacrifice of Jesus and turning your lives to him, turning over your lives to him, accepting the fact, acknowledging your sin, and turning away from it and turning to Jesus. Then those words are a wonderful invitation to you and often used as an invitation. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And the beautiful thing about these words is the first part. If anyone hears my voice, not my voice, Jesus' voice. Perhaps you've been coming here for several weeks or several months and you've been hearing Jesus' voice. What a wonderful time to respond to that invitation. The knock and the door will be opened by the God who loves you so much, by Jesus who stands with open arms to invite you in. I'm going to give all of us a few minutes to think, are there some areas where we need to evaluate our lives? We love Jesus, but we know there's something we should repent of, you know, knowing of the glorious hope ahead of us. And for those of you that are wondering, you know, is this the time? Am I hearing from Jesus? I really should turn my life over to him. I do want you to consider coming up here after the service and let's talk about it. Let's pray. Let's not pray, but let's, let's sort of have a time of quiet meditation for, for a minute or so as we think about the words that we've looked at so far. Father, we're thankful for your word. And we're grateful when they're positive words and encouraging. And we're grateful, Father, when they're challenging words and call for action. Help us, Father, to re respond in earnest to either one, the positive as well as the challenges. Father, as we close this morning, we're grateful both for you as creator. This is a wonderful world we live in. And it's hard to imagine that it just gets better. But we know the best part is that you're letting us know that we'll be in full relationship with you. Help us, Father, to have victory over the trials and the temptations that we face. We love you, Father. And we thank you in Jesus' name for all you do. Amen.